0: Hello, Line Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Line Cook Thoughts Podcast. Hope everyone is staying well and staying safe. Welcome back to another episode of the show. Before we begin, a friendly reminder that every Monday I put out the Line Cook Thoughts Prep List Items newsletter. It is a newsletter that goes out every Monday, sharing thoughts, ideas, information that I find throughout the week, and I send it all out to you via an email. So go to linecookthoughts.com, put in your email, hit subscribe, and you will get that newsletter every week. Also, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a review, and if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and subscribe to the channel. My guest today is Fred Chang, and Fred is someone that uh, I've been wanting to have on for a very long time. He was on Master Chef. he is a Milk Bar alum, he runs his own food blog at freddysharajuku.com. He also is a pastry chef slash content creator, and so... Much more, so many cool things. Go to his Instagram. His at is at Fred Fred Chang Chang. I will also be posting all of the descriptors uh, scriptures, uh, where you can find him, everything else in between, in the description of this podcast. But in this conversation, we talk about Fred's uh, early start to not uh, coloring within the lines, kind of his career path, how much he's done with Master Chef, with his own food blog, with the work he does, and all that in between, and so much more. He talks about his creative process. He talks about you know, how he looks at pastry, how he looks at baking, and also when he decides to do savory foods as well, and a lot about content creation and kind of just his whole background and how he approaches food and how he approaches what he does and what he's good at. His work is really incredible. You know, you go to his Instagram, I'm looking at it now, and there's so many just great photos of food and great recipes that he's done, and it's just very playful, and it's very um, aesthetically pleasing to look at, and he just does a a lot of great work, and I've been, like I said, following him for a couple of years now, and I'm very, very honored and excited to have had him on the show. So, Fred, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening, and here we go. Awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. If you could start out by introducing yourself, that'd be great.
1: Perfect. Hi, my name is Fred, also called Fred Fred Chang Chang. Um, I was on seasons 10 and 12 of MasterChef, and I currently run a food blog called Freddy's Harajuku that posts mostly baking, but a lot of like just cooking recipes like three times a week.
0: Perfect. Good to hear. Yeah, and obviously, I love your Instagram. i been following for quite some time. Uh, definitely, you can go check it out. I'll link his at in the bio of the or the description of this podcast. But yeah, man, thanks for coming on the show. If we want to start out by um, just going over, you know, where you're from, you, you know, your website mentions you were born in Taiwan, you moved to LA. What's your story like from, uh, you know, moving from Taiwan to LA?
1: Yeah. So I was born in Taipei and then my parents and I, my parents, my sister and I, we all immigrated from Taipei to LA back when I was one because they wanted to start their own company out here in the States. So that was kind of their American dream that we kind of got pulled into. And it was interesting because I grew up in a suburb called Torrance, which is like a predominantly Japanese and Korean suburb. So it was was interesting for me just because there were a lot of people who might look like me, so to speak. But culturally and linguistically, it was completely different (laughs) just because I didn't speak either of their languages. So uh, Hmm. I kind of felt like in certain ways, I learned a lot about Korean culture and uh, especially about Japanese culture just by growing up in that kind of environment. So (laughs) I feel like I kind of like got mixed into an interesting cultural melting pot with all of that, like growing up anyways.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And for you, I mean, what was your food identity like growing up? Was there a lot of Japanese and Korean influences or was Um. it... Like, how, I, what was food like for
1: you? Well, so the funny thing is that I didn't grow up with a ton of, like, food influence from my family. My mom most also, when I was really young, my mom um, basically would just, like, cook frozen meals or, like, Kraft mac and cheese slices for us. She tried her best to make us feel like normal American kids. <laughs> Going out mm-hmm. to eat was a lot of Japanese food, I will say, because Torrance is very abundant with that. And that was kind of just normal for me. Um, but then at a certain point, I want to say when I was like six, my mom got cancer. So then she started shifting okay. away from eating very processed foods and then started eating, like she went, basically went to Whole Foods before going to Whole Foods was normal or cool. Like, okay, like literally we were eating organic foods, we we're eating very natural foods, um, Very healthy foods. Like, I ate so much boiled lettuce, and like everything was boiled and drizzled with olive oil and no salt, basically, at that (laughs) point until like I went up to college. So, I would definitely say that as much as I love my mother, (laughs) um, her influences on my cooking weren't necessarily directly based off of what she fed us. More so, just whenever I'd present her a dish when I started getting into cooking and baking, she'd give me her honest feedback, as a lot of Asian parents will. And that's what helped me learn and improve as a pastry cook, honestly.
0: What were some of the first dishes you created or some of the, I mean, for me, I'll I'll go first just to kind of break the ice is that I remember like one of the first things I cooked and showed my mom was scrambled eggs and then I garnished it with dried parsley. And I thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. So what are some of those like first little recipes you were making as a kid?
1: Let's see. Okay. Well, something I did try to do when I was really, really young, and this is before I understood how anything worked was I tried to make cake using, cause we had hot cocoa mix. So I tried to make <laughs> cakes using hot cocoa mix and they tasted horrible. Oh my God, they were like <laughs> rubbery and tough and dry. Yeah, like this was back when I was like six. I didn't actually start learning how to actually bake until I was maybe 15. And at okay. that point, I was actually making like vegan cupcakes cause my health freak mother refused to let me bring butter into her kitchen. So yeah, like, I literally like my actual start was vegan cupcakes, but my like early childhood start was those nasty hot cocoa mix attempts at cakes that were just really dry <laughs> and horrible. Sounds though like you know you were kind of ahead of the trend of vegan, plant-based moving oh, forward. So it was um an interesting time because I still remember back in high school when I brought those like a batch of vegan cupcakes in for a St. Patrick's Day party. As soon as my teacher announced that they were vegan, everyone refused to eat them. And they prefer, like, the grocery store store bought cookcakes to mine. And I was like, no, wow, okay. I mean, I'm sure that probably <laughs> aged very poorly now. But back then, it was definitely yeah. one of the more um, traumatic experiences of me being a vegan baker. Everyone was like, vegan, that's nasty. I'm like, have you ever had a PB&J? That's vegan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Definitely. yeah it's so i
1: not even a vegan but yeah like i literally had to start <laughs> as a vegan baker because of my mom's health restrictions
0: yeah well i mean i guess we all start with different ways and that was yours so yeah thanks for sharing that
1: of course
0: maybe this goes with that you mentioned it mentions in your bio on your website not wanting to color within the lines mm. and i feel like anyone who goes into food and does kind of the things you've done with media and forging out on their own there's definitely that idea of not sticking to one path or not, not one path, but not the path that everyone would expect you to kind of stick to. Yeah, Has that been like a big, uh, theme within your life? Just like not staying within the lines or coloring within the lines. How do you like feel that represents itself in your path so far?
1: I definitely say growing up, everyone would assume certain things about me just based off of how I present. So people would be like, Oh, he must be very studious. He must be very like well-mannered and well-behaved. And I mean, I'd say I'm decently well-behaved and decently mannered, but studious would not be how I describe myself. I hated school, like, to the point where I actively just didn't try in school at all. Um, yeah, you know, like, I, wasn't, I wouldn't say that, like, a lot of the things that people would impose upon me, they'd be like, oh, he must be good at science, he must be good at math, and it's like, I wouldn't say I'm, like, good at it. <laughs> I mean, I'll, you know, like, I'm, I'm trying not to fail out of high school or, like, college or whatever, but, like. Yeah, there was a lot of that for sure, though, where people would expect one thing. Like, even in college, people assume that I was, like, an engineering major because skinny Asian boy, why would you not? But, like, no, I went to a school for hotel management. <laughs> it's, like, completely oh, yeah. different. Yeah, like, very out of the box from what people would expect. So, yeah, a lot of it was people assuming things about me from how I present or how I look. And then when they actually get to know my personality, realizing, oh, he's completely different than what, he, like, what we expect of him. <laughs> Like, I mean, a lot of people, like, when they look at me, they wouldn't think right away, oh, he knows how to bake. <laughs> they just see Skinny Asian Boy and they probably think, oh, he must play, like, World of Warcraft or League of Legends or one of those games that I actually don't know about yet because like, I don't pay attention to that. <laughs> yeah, so, like, yeah, but, like. Very
0: fair. I mean, has that, how have, like, assumptions or, like, what people kind of judge you has that also affected you, like, within your career? Uh, you've, you've done a lot of, like, uh, media-facing, people-facing, like, opportunities. How do you kind of break through that or kind of manage the assumptions of others?
1: Um, i definitely say that I always go, like, put forth what I'm best known for, like, in my eyes first. So I definitely emphasize the pastry. I definitely emphasize just being, like, a cheerful ball of sunshine or, like, being an Angelino, so to speak. I definitely try my best to just... Yeah, so putting forth what I believe my truth on what my perception of myself is, I definitely try my best to put that forward first as opposed to letting people try to fit me into a mold. Like, as soon as people are like, oh, he must be very studious or, oh, he must be very um by the book. I'm like, eh, not really. Like, I mean, no more than like the average person, I'd say. But like, yeah. what I like to do is make insane desserts or I like to take like random stuff and make fun dishes out of it. <laughs> And I like to just, you know, be creative and paint this colorful world of pastry using all the fun techniques that I've been picking up over the years.
0: Very fair, very fair. So why don't I go a little bit into your experience? And I'd love to ask first, I know you had some experience in Michelin kitchens. and yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting when doing research for the podcast, because for me, seeing your career now, Michelin seems so far removed from like the type of structure that you'd probably do best in, like for you it, not really knowing you besides talking to you now it seems like you would do best in a very like creative like an environment that allows you to think freely and do stuff like that and while and I don't know that a michelin kitchen necessarily has that structure what was your experience like working in michelin starred kitchens and did you like it and what did you take from it
1: oh yeah (laughs) it wasn't okay I'll be honest so that was like the last time I stepped foot in a michelin star kitchen was when I was 19 to doing some oh my god that was like nine years ago actually which is crazy for me to think it's been nearly a decade but yeah back then I definitely did not enjoy it at all I definitely only did it just to get the experience in like you know doing all these dodges and trying to you know learn from these chefs while they're basically grilling you on everything down to like the angle that you hold your knife when you slice down or like literally that's like the basic things that they were grilling me on it was definitely very tough I didn't fully enjoy it. But I will say that it did teach me a lot about how to be resilient and how you have to really focus and love what you do in order to thrive in it. <laughs> it just so happens that that mm-hmm. wasn't something that I particularly loved doing. I would say um, that was like in LA. When I went to school in Boston, I did like a couple more stodges under a few other James Beard Award winners. I would say one environment, even though it was like super fine dining and had a Michelin guide visited Boston at that time, it would have definitely had like one star based off of the wine program, the quality of the service and the quality of the food. Um, that environment was actually a lot of fun. Everyone was very cheerful and supportive of each other. I mean, there's still like a level of seriousness and intensity for sure, but mm-hmm. we were allowed to be a lot more collaborative and less critical. So I did appreciate that a lot more. Um, yeah, like... okay. That restaurant, it's called La and Unfortunately, it closed, I think, right before the pandemic, which I was really bummed about because the like the team there was really great. But yeah, like yeah. learning from those chefs was really enlightening for me. And then at Milk Bar, which I'm mean, Christina Tosi is also James Beard award winning, which was really like funny that that's like just the contingency path I've been taking. Uh, And her environment, she just set it up so that way everything's just fun. We were all just basically like blasting Lizzo and making layer cakes. In my case, (laughs) I was kind of a hybrid position where I helped on the bakery operation line. But I was also um, doing R&D during my downtime. So it's like, oh, we're done like batching out breads or we're done like done batching out cakes. You can go and like start doing whatever you want with whatever we have in the pantry. So long as it looks like something we come up with. So that was a lot more fun because it's like... Okay, so I had to think in the shoes of someone who grew up in the Midwest, someone who's, like, full-on Americana. Fun fact, before, actually, a year ago, I've never even visited the Midwest. So I was like, okay, um, so I have to do some research here and figure out, like, you know, if I grew up in Ohio, what would I, like, what would I find nostalgic? And then I'd go from there, which was a ton of fun, actually.
0: That's actually very funny. What, um, what do you think Milk Bar captured? You know, as someone who bakes, as someone who has worked in a variety of different like environments, what do you think milk bar captures that makes it so popular?
1: I mean, from like a workforce standpoint, they keep reiterating do you, which is just saying like be yourself and embrace who you are, which is a message that does genuinely resonate with me. I remember Christina kept hammering that point home to us and it was something that I was like, this is how I know I belong here. From a consumer standpoint, they always try to touch upon nostalgia, but making it creative or unique based off of that. So something that universally can resonate with everybody is like, you know, a birthday cake with like rainbow sprinkles in it. But how can we take that and make it a little bit different just so that way it stands out from a birthday cake that you find from a grocery store. So or, like, another example, and this was a funny one, was um we had pizza bombs, so it's, like, a bread dough that's stuffed with, like, tomato and cheese and pepperoni, and it's just baked like that, so it's, like, this bread ball, but when you bite into it, it's, like, an entire pizza inside. Like, everyone grew up on, like, a pizza bagel. So this is, like, Christina's homage to that. So it was really fun just to see basic, well, from, like, a consumer standpoint, it's definitely touching upon those bits of nostalgia that you might have growing up in America and just, like, seeing a fun, like, high, well, like, what would I say? Like, a very technical pastry chef's take on it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Is, is there, um, you know, with your with the culture of Taiwan, is there a, any baked goods? Or is there any, like, how similar, is there any similarities in Taiwan? Like, well, if if Christina Tosi's, like, milk ice cream or cereal milk ice cream is, like, something that's very nostalgic, is there anything from Taiwanese culture that you would say is like, relevant or that you would find
1: somewhere? For me, let's see, shaved ice with condensed milk and strawberries was, like, my go-to growing up as a kid. Like, there was, like, a shaved ice store. uh, Shaved ice in Chinese is called bing, But there was, like, one of those stores, like, right across the street from my grandma's house. So we'd go there, like, every single summer we'd visit because, like, Taiwan's burning hot in the summer. So we needed something frozen Mm -hmm. to cool us down. Um, pudding or purin or flan, basically like a baked custard with like a caramel layer on top. Very popular in Japan, but also in Taiwan as well, because Taiwanese culture does pull a lot from Japanese influences. I just feel like Japanese mm-hmm. influences followed me my entire life because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think what else is there. I mean, the most popular one is definitely pineapple cake, which is like this flaky, buttery pastry that surrounds like this thick pineapple lump. I Like, the closest thing I can call it is, like, a jam or a jelly, but it's, like, really thick because it's, like, pineapples that are cooked down with pectin, so it's, like, a jelly-like substance, but it's baked into a flaky pastry, and it's, like, sweet and buttery. That was something that I definitely remember eating a lot as a kid. And then also Chinese almond cookie. Well, there's a, a couple different versions of Chinese almond cookies, but the version I grew up with, it's, like, a shortbread with, like, almond slivers baked into it. So it's like got the crunch of the almond and the butteriness of the shortbread. That was something like I used, my parents would get for me every single day from like the local Taiwanese bakery when I grew up actually in the States, but (laughs) it was Taiwanese. Very
0: cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, No, that all sounds good. The shaved ice one, especially. I don't know that I've ever tried that, but I would love to.
1: Oh yeah. It's so good. The thing is like with the condensed milk being poured into it, it gives it this really creamy texture and you can customize it too. And like, the version I ate, I ate that one because I like condensed milk and strawberries, but you can also get it with, like, these chewy taro balls. If you ever had, like, mochi, it's very similar to that, mm-hmm. but instead of rice flour, mm-hmm. they use taro, so it takes on, like, a much more vibrant color, either purple or yellow, depending on what kind of, like, variation of taro or sweet potato they use for it. Um, What else? They also have, like, red bean jam, which is also pretty delicious if you like red beans. I'm, like, neutral to them, so, like, I can live with or without... <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's okay. other, yeah, so like there's a lot of different ways to customize it, but all in all, it's just like that's nostalgia for me and my family, I'd say.
0: That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Okay. Uh, I want to get into kind of what else inspires you and a big theme on your website and reading your bio is Japan's Harajuku district. Oh, yeah. Um, if you could talk a little bit about, speak to a little bit about that, I think that'd be great.
1: Yeah, so back when I was 17, I did a, stud- a student exchange with um, a, like with Japan. So my dad was a Rotarian. So basically how it worked was like two Rotarian children from the US and then two from Japan would just like switch houses. So I got to basically stay in Japan for like an entire summer through that program. And when we we're visiting Tokyo, we were walking through Harajuku and I noticed that, and this is like when I was 17, I was a lot younger back then. I was still like very much trying to just survive in a mold that I was, being forced into because I didn't want to get bullied so I was just seeing all these like kids around my age or a little bit older dressed in like these very interesting and unique outfits that like I definitely didn't have the bravery or the audacity or the like cojones to wear myself and just seeing like them basically thrive and enjoy being themselves that was something that very much like touched like it touched me personally and with Harajuku as a whole it's the fashion, like, it's the culmination of youth fashion and culture. And I feel like with my desserts, I try my best to do things that really touch upon things that are unique and vibrant and new and pull from different aspects of the world too. So I feel like with my pastries, it very much is indicative of the spirit of Harajuku because it's about self-expression and it's about like embracing all the colorful influences of the world around you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I
0: think You know, creativity, and we, I know this is maybe a little bit of a later prompt, but I I can bring it up now. Is it's like creativity in general and how you think about food. I know for myself, when I think about media, when I think about what I'm going to put out for Line Cook Thoughts, like there's no, like I feel like there really is like no original ideas. It's just more so um, metamorphosis into like different ways of combining old things or things that have been done. Yeah. But when you, you, the way you know, you speak and the way you talk about your creative process very much being you. Do you ever find yourself when baking or when wanting to try something where something is, sounds like a good idea, something sounds like it'd be fun, but you stop yourself because it's not really you, it's more so just like a cool thing? Or do you kind of just let yourself be open to experiencing new ideas or stuff that might not be like you, quote-unquote?
1: I mean, I definitely try to keep an open mind just because the only way that we can like, grow as cooks or grow as like recipe conceptualists is to try new things that you might not be familiar with. For me personally like i love when i can have a personal or like emotional connection to what i'm making but you know sometimes like i might not but it will help me grow so an example would be croissants like i can't say that my like french grandmother like raised me on croissants or something like that like i have no memories of making croissants as a kid probably the closest thing is like i don't know unfurling that can of pillsbury dough but um During the pandemic, I knew that if I wanted to continue learning more about being a pastry, like about pastry and being a better pastry cook, I had to basically get my feet wet with croissant making, even though it wasn't something that I personally had any connection with. So, you know, I guess in that case, I'd say it's more like you become the processes that you take on and you become like these things that might be foreign to you or might not be familiar to you or resonate with you initially can become a part of your identity through trust trying to embrace it, learn it, and perfect it in your own way. So, croissant making was something that took 28 days of practice to make. I went through, like, eight batches and so much butter. Turns out, don't use Irish butter when you're making it, because that ruined my first six batches of croissants. The moisture content. Still, Why is that? Uh, moisture? The moisture content, yeah. Because of that, my dough kept, like, the layers kept sticking to each other, so when it baked, it basically turned into brioche, instead of having, like, distinct separate layers, and I was like, all, all this work because each time I'd make a batch it was three de- like it took three days so it was um, yeah after I switched my butter and then I realized oh I've been doing this correctly it's just the product I was using was not right for this but that's the fun yeah. in developing recipes and practicing and learning is that you can fully understand it when like through the failures and the successes <laughs> when you talk about failing at
0: recipes that that is more so a technique I would say failure where you and that's how you learn technique is you fail until you learn it um what about has there there ever been any flavor failures for you have there any ever been any recipes where you like had flavors that you're like this is gonna work this is gonna be great and it just didn't turn out right
1: oh god i almost feel bad putting this out there on the internet but i might as well because it did happen and my friend carolyn still won't give me like stop giving me shit for it so back in high school i was trying to make a cheesecake but i didn't have flour. like i had like two tablespoons of flour left and it was a big cheesecake so i was like crap did you use have cocoa mix oh no i i went worse than that (laughs) it shouldn't have even gotten in the batter so all i had that was a starch or a root vegetable to use was celery root So, I boiled, oh yeah, you know where this is going. It was bad. So, I boiled the <laughs> celery root. I whipped it up into, like, a mashed potato consistency. I folded that into the cheesecake back batter. The cheesecake did bake properly. I will start by saying that. Like, as a cheesecake, from a textural <laughs> standpoint, it works. From a flavor standpoint, when you combine the flavors of celery with the strawberry topping I had on top, it made it taste like marinara sauce. <laughs> Because <laughs> the umami from the celery It counteracts any sweet notes in the strawberry So we basically, I found out that day If you combine celery with strawberry You can make a marinara sauce without tomatoes Fun fact But um, yeah, no, you don't want that in your cheesecake though So I fed that to Carolyn, my friend from high school And she literally took a bite out of it Spat it out and threw the rest into the trash I was like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking I just wanted to make a cheesecake My bad So that would be like that
0: very fair.
1: Yeah, that's that happened like 11 years ago and i still remember it because of how like that's when i realized okay yeah baking is a science but it still has to taste good even if it's scientifically correct it still has to taste good
0: that is daring i give you credit for that one
1: (laughs) i was just very (laughs) because i had already started most of the process for making the cheesecake so when i went to grab the flour i was like crap (laughs) i'm this far gone (laughs) i had to do something and so
0: boiling and making a celery root puree instead of going to get more flour was the answer
1: i didn't know how to drive back then i was only 17. <laughs> it's
0: fair it's fair and there probably wasn't
1: instacart there wasn't instacart it was like two miles away from where i lived, so i couldn't oh, wow. really walk i yeah there was a lot. there was a lot of factors that drove me to doing what i did in retrospect what i should have done was because we had rice i should have just ground up the rice into a flour and thrown that in it would have been better
0: like, yeah,
1: it would have been more it neutral really and less offensive. Sense. Or I think we had almonds too. I could have just thrown almond flour in, but yeah, there were a lot of things I should have done. But in that case, I was like, root vegetable, celery root. Okay,
0: <laughs> it's a good story to tell though. Oh
1: yeah, <laughs> I mean, <it's> the, <laughs> the everyone audience, has their horror it, stories for sure. Right? <laughs>
0: oh, definitely, I definitely have mine. I uh, gosh, I don't even know. Like, I don't know if I. I don't. There's some. I I don't know. if it, It's not really a flavor thing, but I'll never forget one of the biggest mistakes I made when when learning how to cook was I was in my fundamentals class at the CIA, nice. and we were making hollandaise, and the uh, I made the hollandaise perfect. Oh, it was so good, and yeah. like all my friends were struggling, but I was stupid and I put the uh, cup that I was going to serve it in in the oven to get hot. Oh. so mm-hmm. I then poured my hollandaise in as I was walking up to show it to chef, and as it got there, I just That's watched wonderful. it like break and scramble and oh no
1: (laughs) that reminds me because i used to be a culinary instructor at like my college just because we did have like cooking classes for the hotel school and i accidentally told one of my students to do that with their hollandaise because they're like how do i store it and i was like well if it's a cold thing the oil will separate so you want it warm so she put her plate in the salamander and then put the bowl like put the yeah so the same exact thing happened and i was like okay before anyone tries to fail her i told her that i'll take the heat give her a pass okay. (laughs) <laughs> like it was perfect before i told you to do that so i yeah i, I totally get it you would think because it's yeah. an emulsion you want to keep it warm but in this case mm-hmm. too warm too cold it gets ruined either way
0: it's very tricky it's a yeah. very tricky sauce it's an easy sauce to make it's oh, a tricky sure. sauce to keep to exactly keep delicious and warm and at the right texture over time so yeah when i worked um, at
1: the club, we had to like keep it over a bain marie so that's like why i assume mm-hmm. putting in the like salamander like Keeping it in a warm bowl was the right thing, but the salamander warmed up the bowl too much, I guess.
0: Yeah, definitely. Going into this, you um, your editor in chief for Taste Buds. Oh yeah, that and was like now, and, a long time ago. It was a college um, food magazine?
1: Yeah, so we had like, it was like a college, like food publication. Uh, it was technically a club, but like we actually had, well, the website's now defunct, it's so unfortunate. But uh, yeah, like we had like a whole website where we'd post like reviews on like restaurants in Boston, recipes, as well as um, any like food-related articles. So we were basically competing with like Spoon University. <laughs> but the difference was, unlike Spoon University, we were like BU exclusive, or like Boston yes. University exclusive. Yeah, so. That was like a ton of fun. Um, I'm trying to remember like specific anecdotes. Yeah, I started doing that when I was a sophomore in college because one of my upperclassmen, like upperclassman Rochelle, she recruited me because we were in Japanese class together. It's like, wait, you like to cook and you're in the hospitality school for like food and beverage. I'm like snagging you. So I started through that as like a writer doing recipe posts, and then they moved me up to being an editor my junior year, and then. Funny enough, for senior year, I didn't even want to be editor-in-chief. I was just okay with being an editor. But my friend Amanda, shout out to Amanda, she basically told the current editor-in-chief at that time, Fred should be editor-in-chief. He's very reliable and he's very organized. And he'll lead the club in the generally right direction. So she got me elected, which was really funny because I didn't even think about doing this. I assumed that I didn't have enough seniority. But then, yeah, so I got elected into that. I expand my first, like rule of thumb was I wanted to expand the team a bit more because at that point we were only like six of us editors and all most of us were like well what was it four of us were seniors two of us were juniors I was like okay we need some new blood in here so I expanded the team from six to I think ten so that way we had a lot more underclassmen to carry the club um I instilled like different departments because before it was just like editing department and non-editors I was like no we need a photography department writing department as editor-in-chief I'll oversee like people in charge of each yeah so like i created like a whole structure i'm really sad that it unfortunately didn't continue after i want to say 2020 unfortunately killed the club because 2020 meant no one could do anything Mm. yeah so that's like when i think the club went defunct but it was thriving when back in 2017 when i was in charge and even in 2018 it was still very much going strong i don't know what happened after that though very fair um i
0: it sounds like a fun time. The reason I bring it up is the media experience. Did, did that kind of, was that kind of a, an interesting way for you to kind of experience managing media and kind of, is that where you found out you wanted to do more
1: so media or not really at that point? Um, for me, I just saw it kind of as like a club where I just had to be like overseeing everyone. So I saw it more as just an opportunity to learn how to manage people and manage different personalities and work with a diverse group more than I did like the media aspect of it. Just because at that point, like I'd never been a president of anything. I'd never been like in charge of anything. So I was like, okay, this is kind of awkward that I'm learning my first leadership position at 21 years of age, but let's do it, I guess. But um, yeah, so it was more yeah. that. The media aspect of it, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, the things I did carry over from that actually carried into Freddy's Harajuku where, you know, editing my own articles, doing my own photography, editing my own photography. So definitely, like, my experiences in TasteBud carried over into how I ran my own, like, recipe blog, which I would say was actually a direct extension of my time at TasteBuds.
0: Okay. Yeah, so yeah, I didn't no, say that I, that's
1: what correlated.
0: Very interesting. And I... I where I'm going is like now, like, you know, you look at your Instagram, which I do recommend people checking out, it, it, it's obviously more picture focused than like writing, but you definitely had the experience of being able to present media to people that are going to consume it and you like see your videos now and it, the, there's a very like nice aesthetic to your work and kind of what you decide to put out on Instagram. What is your like process behind content creation in regards to what you're going to share? Is it just whatever you're interested in? Do you have certain types of uh, baked goods that you want to hit throughout the month? What is your kind of process like of making content?
1: Oh, actually, I can show you. So let me see here. Cool. <laughs> so literally, I don't know if this is going to be mirrored, but like literally I have like an active to bake list on my phone. So whenever I come up with, like literally, like whenever I come up with an idea, I'm like, okay, I need to write it down. I need to put it in this list. Mm-hmm. I need to organize it in a way where it's like, okay, is it like are the ingredients for this idea in season? Do I have to wait until like October to make it, for example? Um like beyond that, just like yeah, so a lot of it just starts with an idea, then me writing okay. it down, and then me organizing which ideas I can get done like throughout the week. So like, there's like a very loose process for sure. The organization aspect of it is, like, of like when I want to make certain things depends entirely on how I feel. Like, I might have a really good idea, but then I'm like, eh, I don't feel like making it this week. Eh, I don't feel... Yeah, so there are some, like, what was it? Like, I literally just got around to making a brown rice flour shortbread recipe that I wanted to make. Like, I conceptualized that back in, like, January of this year, but I'm just now getting... uh No, I think I storied... I storied, like, me making it on Instagram, but, like, I haven't posted it. I literally just got around to, like, actually making it yesterday night. (laughs) So, yeah, like, a lot of it also depends on how I feel or seasonality and, you know, what I think I would enjoy eating, too, (laughs) because, like, if I'm not craving the idea that I came up with, I'm not going to make it, because if I can't eat it, then what's the point of making it? (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely, and I'm
0: looking at your page right now, the egg sandwiches were looks so good that
1: you made a few posts ago that one was that one was a ton of fun yeah my mom was traveling in japan and she came back with this cute little bento box for me i was like what can i put in this and immediately i just thought oh just stuff it full of like aesthetically pleasing sandwiches and make it an homage to her because um she was the one who taught me how to actually that is one thing she taught me how to do like (laughs) cooking wise was she taught me how to make perfectly um jammy centered eggs (laughs) okay what's the time you use although yeah um so you put them into boiling hot water for 40 seconds then you lower the heat cover the pot for five minutes then you take them out and while they're still warm run them under cold water and then peel them okay. and then every single time the inside will be jammy with just a slight run interesting
0: sounds good are they um yeah for like the the time that i was given by a chef in school um uh, he wasn't like you know one of our classes i just met i think i met him in the halls where he was talking and i was talking about ramen for like a runny egg yolk, where the yolk is perfectly runny but the white is fully set, so you start boiling water and then you put the eggs in water and then set a timer for six minutes and sixteen seconds. And every time, oh. after six minutes and sixteen huh. seconds, it's like perfect white and then completely runny yolk. So
1: you obviously have to blanch it right write... after that. But yeah, yeah, huh. I'm definitely gonna write that down because the sixteen seconds I didn't know. Like I've heard of six minute eggs, but not six sixteen, which. Actually, I'm going to write that down. That is a really great tip. You can test it. I'm
0: sure, I'm sure it's all, I mean, I've used it a ton and I think it's, it has like a 95% success rate. I feel like if you have really large eggs or really small eggs, that time obviously variation is a little bit different, but uh, yeah, try it out. Let me know what you, what you think.
1: Well, definitely. Yeah. That's like, what was, I love a runny egg on like on top of anything like toast, Mm -hmm. toast, ramen. I have made my own ramen from scratch before, but, it takes time. Yeah. Especially sure for pressure cooker. I've I've also
0: made, I did you know, Ivan Ramen, um, I did his like, I used his cookbook and uh, that's t-
1: literally took me like 13 hours to do all the, the broth. Oh gosh. I was thinking like six hours. <laughs> yeah. Like how I did it back home was like, I roasted like a shitload of pork bones in the oven, well in the broiler for like an hour. Mm-hmm. Then I just like simmered it in like a kombu water situation for like another five hours. Nice. And then I was able to get, like, a pretty convincing tonkotsu broth. I was like, oh, this is passable as ramen broth. I can drink this as ramen broth. If, if I were to refrigerate this, it would, gel- like, gelatinize the same way. <laughs> so, but, yeah, I mean, roasting the bones and then simmering them for, like, an eternity. Very fair. <laughs> it's a labor of love.
0: <laughs> Two more uh, topics. One, master chef; Two, balance of work and outside work uh one going to master i i know you've spoken at on another podcast and so i don't want to ask like, the same questions over and over but for you mm-hmm. going into a such a public space and um you no know, working through that like what what was that like for you what did you enjoy MasterChef? did you enjoy the experience what, what were the initial like feelings for it
1: uh so in my first season you have to keep in mind i've never even had like a camera to my face before or like a mic on me so or even like set foot on the set well no I did set foot on a set of one like show but I was in the audience but yeah like I've never really done anything quite like that before <laughs> to the point where I was like pretty I had pretty bad stage fright I would say where I just didn't really know how to take all of that experience in as normal like waking up at 5 a.m getting dressed getting your makeup on getting your hair done um getting a mic attached to you, getting like yeah like Yeah, all that was just it was a lot for me because I'd never done anything like that before. So I definitely said I would say my first season, I was a lot more stage frightened than anything else. I was also terrified about how the public would perceive me, too, because I was like, will they be okay with me? Will I get like a lot of racial homophobic things thrown at me? Like, I don't know how I'm going to be received by the general audience of the show. So I was definitely really, really self-conscious of myself during that first run, to the point where I wouldn't say I fully enjoyed it as much as I could have. Um, my second go at it though, I definitely made a point to just try to relax and have fun with it. And I do think that that did translate a lot more in the edit, in the sense that they didn't show me, like, freaking out at, well, much to at all until I basically got sent home. <laughs> when i think you just needed to write a storyline of oh fred's going home so we need to make it look like he's spiraled when in reality it was more like fred was just chilling but okay use your sound bites however you want (laughs) but yeah i mean yeah so like i definitely would say my first time at it i didn't have as much fun as i wanted to have with it which is why for my second time i made a point to just try to actually enjoy the experience for what it was because not everyone can say that they get to do those things you know they don't get to have a mic set up, they don't have to meet Gordon Ramsay and give him a high five or have like banter with the judges or be on a TV show that will be broadcasted to the whole world. Oh, that was another thing. I thought that this was only getting broadcasted to the US. I didn't realize that the turnover time for it being broadcasted from the US to other countries was like within the same year, because I knew that Taiwan eventually got it, but I didn't realize it would be like just four months after it finished in the States. I thought it was a couple years from now. I was like oh shoot <laughs> so um i definitely would say overall i do i did enjoy the experience as a whole because of my second time around where i got to just enjoy it for what it was um i would also say that like a lot of the friendships i made from it like i'm still friends with sherry who i mentioned the girl like the lady who invited me to the st jude's event my best friend brie and i like talk basically every week um i'm really close with my the winner of my second season dara just because she's also based in la so we hang out from time to time she's been on
0: the podcast um
1: oh she has Mm -hmm. yeah oh that's so great (laughs) how did you like her isn't she like the like most delightful human awesome
0: yeah definitely i really enjoyed our conversation and she was just so energetic and like just so willing to just talk about everything she's working on and very excited about it so
1: yeah, wait, did you guys go to, like, school at the same time then? Because she was also CIA, right? No, I I think I graduated. I did graduate before her, so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, Dara and I, like, that was a fun story, too. Um, yeah, because, like, I didn't know that they were going to bring on, like, the juniors for the second season, because the second season was, like, an all-star season, and in Australia and Canada, where they had already done it, they didn't do that. Mm. So when my friend Bree was like, oh, my God, I think they were, like, kids from, like, the grown-ups, like, grown-ups from the kids' versions on, like, in our season, I was like, what? (laughs) And then I met Dara, and I was like, oh my god, you were, like, 12 when I was in college. This is so (laughs) weird for me. (laughs) But then we got along really, really well. I don't know if it was just because, like, we're both, like, Chinese-ish American, and, well, I'm technically a quarter Chinese, so, yeah, it's, like, Chinese-American, and, like, raised in LA, or what caused us to gravitate towards each other, but we, like, became really close really quickly, and then, yeah, we were like, I call her like my trauma buddy because we went through some pretty um insane challenges together. Specifically,
0: very <laughs> yeah, yeah. hurt.
1: Yeah, like I can
0: imagine that's Yeah, so like the a brand tough. Is like not tough. I imagine there's like so much like built between. Like it's such a unique experience, right? Like who can you relate to with that? Besides the person there. Exactly.
1: Yeah, like I'm very fortunate that my friend Bree got to be on two seasons with me because our experience is so intertwined because. Uh, the first time around, she lost two more eliminations than I did. The second time around, I losted two more than she did. So because of that, like I'd say like ninety percent of well ninety five percent of our experiences were like so similar, except mm-hmm. the two challenges I outlasted her on and the two that she yeah. So besides those, like we basically experienced so much of the same things that we we, we have so many inside jokes between the two of us now because of it like things that no, like that no one else would be able to get because they weren't on both seasons for those same durations.
0: Very fair. Very fair. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing about that. And yeah, definitely shout out Tara. She was awesome to have on the
1: show. So um, I'm glad to hear. Yeah. She's such a fun person to be around.
0: <laughs> Last question I want to talk about. We, we share the similarity of we both have full-time jobs and then we also do content creation on the side. Um, Yeah. So for you, what is that balance like? How do you balance it out? How do you prioritize it? And how do you kind of view your time in general?
1: Yeah, so I would definitely say I became really, really strong at multitasking, especially during the pandemic. So to not like I don't again, I don't like talking about my full time job because it's boring. But I will say during the pandemic, um, I was one of the few people that wasn't fired from his job. Hmm. But in response to that, they my company at the time decided to make me do 12 people's jobs hmm. instead okay. <laughs> of firing me. So um, I was doing like I learned how to be an extremely strong multitasker because of that. I even like actually before the pandemic. So right after MasterChef, I was working full time. I was also working at Milk Bar. I was doing social media content creation, I was doing the blog, I was also doing pop-ups with Bree. So basically, I was working around the clock every single day to the point where I just never had like a moment to just breathe and just do my own thing. But what that experience taught me was how to be really, really good at maximizing my time. And what that carried over to during the pandemic was I became, I told myself, if I get to keep my job, I'll become a morning person, I'll have better habits, I'll wake up at six o'clock and work out. And then, yeah, so like, my day to day nowadays, it's like, I wake up, I either content create or work out, go to work for my eight hours, come back, either work out or finish content creating while I still have my natural daylight. And then like sleep and then do like, do it all over again. The only variations there might be like, if I'm hanging out with a friend for dinner, then I had to force all my content creation and working out to be in the morning. And yeah, like a lot of it is just being really strong with timing, multitasking, Um, giving my like the weekends for sure. I spend half of it like relaxing then half of it actually content creating as well. Yeah. But yeah, like a lot of it's just multitasking and managing your time really well. I'd say that for me, time is a very important thing because while I'm still young and able to do these things, I might as well just make the most of my time of being able to do it before, you know, I get like get older and have to actually start committing to other things like having a family or owning a business. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: just try, trying to enjoy my life in my 20s while I still can.
0: <laughs> I'm in the same boat as you. And I do think, though, there's, like, this... Uh, like, a lot of people ask me, do you do line cook thoughts full-time? Or is there, like... I think a lot of people just a lot of times it's starting out while like you're doing something else. And like, for me, like, I love my regular, like my full-time job. So for me, this is kind of like a passion project that I've been doing on the side. It's something I love as well. And it's opened a lot of doors and opportunities. Um, but I don't know, I feel like a lot of people just assume that you either do content creation or you do something else. And I think there's like people like you and me and so many more that actually balance like having their job, but then also doing this on the side. And so I asked that just to, you know, share with the audience and share with anyone listening that there's, there's oftentimes if you want to do something, just doing it is the key. And there's not, you know, there's there's very rarely a point where you can just start doing food media or food content. And it's like, Oh, that's my full time thing. It like takes time to build that up. So just wanted you to speak to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, some people, they do get lucky and they can make it their full time thing. And you know, if I could do that, that'd be amazing. But at the same time, What I do appreciate about having a job outside of this is that I have something else to go to, like I have something else to channel my energy into as well. And it was something that was very important to me, too, was just making sure I had that stability and I had that constant income and I have health insurance and things that, you know, like adult things that aren't that fun to talk about, but you do need like you do need money, you do need healthcare. having a stable flow of income is very important. And also like what I appreciate about my nine to five is that even though it's extremely boring to talk about, and I literally never talk about it, like in any form, it does give me the flexibility to do what I want outside of work. So that way I can still do things like content create while still having enough money to support that passion project and that hobby. Very fair. Awesome.
0: Well, Fred, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you wanted to share any social media handles,
1: websites, anything at all, now would be the time. Okay, so my Instagram would be at Fred Fred Chang Chang, and um I also like post on my recipe blog at Freddy's well, which is freddysharajuku.com. They literally advertise one and like they feed into one another. So if you want to check out my recipes, it'd be on freddysharajuku.com. If you want to check out me recording the processes of those recipes, it would be on Fred, Fred Chang Chang.
0: Awesome. What is one piece of
1: advice you want to leave uh people listening to the show right now? Hmm, I'd say be yourself, and if you really do work hard enough, you can do it all. It's so, like don't limit yourself based off of you feeling like, oh, I have to do one or the other. In the case of the full-time job and the hobby or the passion project, you can do both. You just have to organize your time better and, you know, find a way to make it work. And there are ways to make it work. So awesome. keep like keep chasing your dreams and keep being like keep learning to love who you are. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, too. All right. Mm-hmm.
0: So there you have my interview with Fred Chang. Once again, thank you all for listening. Go to thoughts.com to subscribe to the newsletter. Go look at the description of this episode to follow Fred on Instagram and um, all of his other sites. And then obviously leave a review on Apple or Spotify if you're listening and hit like and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you all so much for listening. I'll see you on the next line Cook Thoughts podcast.